Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff, and Happy New Year! I'm your host, executive producer Jonathan Strickland, and I am in iHeartRadio land, where I'm coming to you from 2020 to talk about the past. You see, I recently did a pair of episodes about uh, the big tech news stories of 2019. But now we're in 2020, and I thought it might be fun to look back at, you know, the big stuff that happened over the previous decade. And I guess we're going to see how many episodes this takes up. Spoiler alert, it'll take up two. I wrote these notes before I got to the end of the second episode. Uh, I really just plan to give high-level details on most of these stories. I'm not going into deep detail, obviously. I spent two full episodes just talking about 2019, so I clearly can't do the same for every single year. It would go through half of 2020. So we're just going to take sort of a high-level look at the big stories of those years. And also, spoiler alert, we're not going to cover 2019 because I just did that. You'll hear me say that a couple times during these episodes. I really want to nail that home. All right, so let's begin with 2009. Now, for those of you who are curious, I had been with my previous employer, HowStuffWorks.com, for two years at that point. I had been hired in 2007. I had actually been podcasting since June of 2008. So 2009 would actually be my first full calendar year of being a podcast host. But this pair of episodes. These aren't really about me. I just thought it'd be fun to start off with that. Much more important than my career was the fact that the world was in a global recession, largely brought about by some, frankly, dumb decisions made back in 2007 or so, revolving around subprime mortgages, but that is beyond the scope of tech stuff. The effects went well beyond the real estate industry, however, and many industries were hit hard by this recession. Tech in particular was really struggling with this. And while there were signs of recovery on the horizon, it was still a pretty hefty recession covering the world for most of 2009. Now, the effect that was felt in the tech world was felt by both established companies and emerging ones. Several startups fizzled out for lack of funding because investors were starting to hold on to their money more tightly. They were less likely to invest because they were worried about the outcomes. Advertising also took a huge hit in 2009. And since many web-related businesses depend largely or sometimes entirely upon advertising dollars, they really felt that squeeze. Some companies were forced to lay off employees and cost-cutting measures, tightening up their belts to get through the recession. Now, it wasn't all doom and gloom. 2009 was the year that Microsoft launched Windows 7. That's hard for me to believe, but yeah, Windows 7 came out in 2009. That version was meant to be more streamlined and faster than the preceding version, the one that came before. That one was Windows Vista. Now, in general... Vista had received some pretty mixed reviews, which is being kind. A lot of the reviews were pretty negative. And the corporate world at large had stayed away from adopting Windows Vista, largely due to those criticisms. So in other words, the big, big customers, you know, big corporate customers that would be using Microsoft, uh, you know, operating systems on their, their computers for all their employees, they weren't signing on to Windows Vista. And so the company had to do something about it. 
many people saw Windows 7 as sort of a course correction from Microsoft. And you would think that that would mean that Microsoft would learn valuable lessons in this process and that it would be able to take advantage of that experience when they were ready to launch the next operating system version. But as we will eventually see, that's not exactly how things would shake out. Microsoft also struck a deal with Yahoo in 2009 that would see Microsoft's search technology, Bing, power Yahoo searches. In return, Yahoo would sell ad services for Microsoft. Now, this arose after Microsoft had led a failed attempt, an unwelcome, unsolicited attempt to acquire Yahoo outright. That fell through, so instead the two struck this partnership. Meanwhile, over at Google... Google would release the Chrome operating system in 2009, which meant Google was essentially acknowledging that it was going to go toe-to-toe with companies like Microsoft. Now, unlike bigger, bulkier operating systems like macOS or Windows, the Chrome version of an operating system is much more lean and streamlined. It moves most of the computational processes to the cloud rather than on the device that the OS is installed upon. So, It's really only useful if you have a persistent internet connection. Uh, Google was responding to a trend that was still in the process of emerging back in 2009, and that trend was that users were starting to rely more on connected services and less on native programs running on their own hardware. So in other words, instead of having a word processing program on your machine, you would log into a web service where you would use a web-based word processing program. Now, that being said, if you look up the market share for operating systems on desktop and laptop computers and compare them against each other, you will see that today Windows is still the overall king by a landslide. Then in second place, distant second place, is Apple's operating system. And then Chrome barely even registers on the charts. So while Google did recognize a growing trend in the way we access services, that more and more people are using mobile devices, for example, that has not actually translated over that much into the laptop and desktop world. People seem to still want to have a more beefy device for those particular form factors. In 2009, some leaks revealed that Google was preparing its own branded phone. Android phones were already on the market in 2009, and the iPhone had really kicked off the smartphone era back in 2007, but Google was content at first just to create the operating system and some apps, and then would allow other manufacturers to put that operating system on their phones. But in 2009, the company started handing out Nexus One-branded smartphones to Google employees, and it would take a little while longer before these would become available for the general public to purchase. But it did show that Google was actually interested in getting into the hardware game as well. Also in 2009, Eric Schmidt, who was Google's CEO at that time, resigned from the board of directors over at Apple. And this was over concern that there might be a conflict of interest issue that was growing there because now Google was getting into the smartphone business. So he stepped down. Another Apple-related event that happened in 2009 centered on the health of co-founder Steve Jobs. Now, Jobs had been in treatment for pancreatic cancer in the past, and then he took a medical leave of absence from Apple in January 2009. The stated reason was that Jobs was dealing with, quote-unquote, a hormonal imbalance, 
But it later came to light in June of 2009 that he had actually received a liver transplant. The belated revelation did not please investors, who felt that they were owed more transparency regarding Jobs' health, since his iconic leadership was so intrinsically linked to Apple's performance. The incident also prompted people to wonder what Apple would be like without Jobs as CEO, and it would become a question that we'd sadly get answers to only a couple of years later. Now, it's easy to forget that back in 2009, the only cell phone carrier in the United States that could hold the iPhone, the only one that supported the iPhone, was AT&T. Apple had signed an exclusivity agreement with AT&T that lasted a couple of years. That exclusivity would be used against both Apple and AT&T as people reported dissatisfaction with AT&T's 3G coverage, and competing cell phone carriers would claim that their own networks were far more robust and reliable for fast connections, though you would obviously have to use a different phone from the iPhone because they couldn't support it. They couldn't carry the iPhone at that point. Intel lost some fights in courtrooms around the world in 2009 as various agencies charged that the company was engaging in anti-competitive practices and using its dominant position in the market as a way to squash competition. The EU commission uh, fined Intel more than a billion, that's billion with a B, euro a truly princely sum. Intel also settled an antitrust lawsuit brought against it by AMD for another $1.25 billion. Oof. Now, here's some other things that happened in 2009. Uh, Bitcoin launched in early 2009, and the digital cryptocurrency would introduce concepts like blockchain to the tech world at large as a result. And then over the years, we would see the value of a Bitcoin go all over the place, going into the stratosphere and diving deep and then going back up again in a very crazy way. And to this day, I think it remains more of a commodity than a currency. It's still hard for me to imagine spending Bitcoin like a, like a regular currency. In 2009, eBay would sell off most of its stake in Skype, did so at a substantial loss. A couple of years after that, Microsoft would acquire Skype for an astronomical $8.5 billion. Also in 2009, Palm, you guys remember Palm? That's the company that dominated in the personal digital assistant or PDA industry for a really long time. Well, in 2009, it launched the Palm Pre. It was meant to be the smartphone that would return Palm to prominence after it started to lag behind competitors like Apple and Google. Although many tech reviewers gave the Pre pretty positive reviews, they kind of liked it, sales just didn't follow. They were just lackluster. And the following year, HP would purchase Palm. And a year after that, HP announced it was discontinuing production of Palm devices. I could have saved that for the following years. I could have, you know, said, all right, well, now we're in 2010, et cetera, et cetera. But I figured it made more sense to just kind of wrap it all up in this one little spot. Oh, and uh, 2009 was also the founding year for MakerBot, the 3D printer company that brought additive manufacturing to the hobbyist and consumer market. And also a little company called Uber launched in 2009. More on that little company later, particularly in the next episode. All right, so let's move on to 2010. 
That year, Microsoft introduced the Kinect peripheral for the Xbox 360 console. And for those of you who don't know, the Kinect has cameras, including an infrared camera, that can detect user movements and gestures as inputs for games and other applications. It can also use image recognition software so that it can authorize a profile on a specific console so that if you stand in front of the Kinect, it knows that you're the one playing it. Whereas if your roommate stands in front of the Kinect, it goes to your roommate's profile on that same machine, etc. It can also pick up voice commands through a microphone. And to the hacker community, the Kinect represented an interesting opportunity to leverage some cool technology for uses far beyond a video game peripheral, such as in robotic vision or 3D scanning. Microsoft would flip-flop between being supportive toward these endeavors and then locking down the Kinect to try and prevent unauthorized use and going back and forth between those two. While the changing stance would irritate the hacking community, it didn't stop people from finding new ways to take advantage of the technology. However, as far as what the Kinect was actually intended to do, it was largely a failure. Gamers cited a lack of good games with compelling implementations of Kinect controls as a reason for the peripheral's ultimate failure in the gaming space. Oh, and uh, Sony would also debut its own motion control system, the Move. Now, over in Iran, computer scientists discovered a type of malicious code called Stuxnet that had been causing equipment failures in nuclear processing plants. The code would ultimately cause centrifuges to operate at the wrong speed, damaging the centrifuges to the point that they would no longer operate. The implication is that the malware came from a state-sponsored source as a means of cyber warfare. It was targeting Iran's nuclear infrastructure specifically. While no official acknowledgement has ever emerged as to which country or countries were behind the development of Stuxnet, speculation generally points to Israel and the United States as having developed it together. One big consumer product that launched in 2010 was the iPad, which I infamously predicted would be a failure. Before the iPad, tablet computers had seen limited success, most of which was limited to niche markets like the medical industry. No one had made a tablet computer that succeeded in the general consumer market. But Apple had already started to rack up a history of creating markets where previously there were none. And in January 2010, Steve Jobs announced the iPad, and at the time, we all snickered at the name. And then the company was set on a path to yet another home run success. Not only did the iPad sell very well, it also inspired numerous other companies to produce their own tablet computers. And it would take a couple of years before anyone made a tablet that could really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Apple's design in the market, but it would eventually happen. Apple's iPhone 4 was in the spotlight in 2010. Actually, it was in the spotlight a little earlier than the company had anticipated because an Apple employee accidentally left behind a prototype iPhone 4 in a bar in California. Someone swooped it up and quickly realized that despite the fact that it was disguised as an iPhone 3GS, it was, in fact, an iPhone 4. Gizmodo then coughed up several thousand dollars to get hold of the thing. The whole affair was a pretty nasty mess, complete with police actions and threatened lawsuits. When the iPhone 4 did come out, it got some pretty harsh reviews. 
Consumer Reports stated that the antenna in the iPhone 4 was a bit wonky and that the phone's reception wasn't always so hot as a result. Apple disputed this review, then said, you know what, maybe the problem is that you're just holding it wrong. Yeah, this was the old holding it wrong argument, saying people should just not hold the lower left corner of the phone when they're making calls, because that seemed to be what was blocking all the signals. Uh, There were also reports that said that people inside Apple had been warning that the placement of the antenna was going to cause problems, but that Steve Jobs ultimately overruled them because that design is what allowed the phone to look the way it did. Now, Facebook would become the world's most visited site in 2010, surpassing Google for the first time in its history. At that point, Facebook boasted almost half a billion users which by today's standards almost seems quaint. The company also became the focus of an Aaron Sorkin film titled The Social Network, and I can't believe that movie came out all the way back in 2010. In my head, that movie is like three years old. But no, it came out in 2010. Oh, and and 2010 is also when Magic Leap, the augmented reality headset company, came into being. The company wouldn't have a commercial headset available until 2019 with the Magic Leap 1, which retails for about $2,300. The company was promising big, big things, and all the the demos and the the vision videos that you saw were amazing. And um, I hear that the response is a little more lackluster to the actual product, but I haven't had my hands on it, nor have I had it on my head, so I can't speak from experience. All right, we've got more to talk about starting with 2011 in just a second, but first let's take a quick break. We're picking up with 2011, and I think one of the biggest stories that year was the death of Apple co-founder Steve Jobs. Now, Jobs was a true icon in technology. He was known to be demanding, sometimes to excess. He had high expectations, and it was said, little patience for those who failed to meet those high expectations. He had been ousted from his own company in the 80s, returned to take the company back in the late 90s, and oversaw its meteoric rise in consumer electronics with the release of products like the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad. He had stepped down as CEO earlier in 2011, passing away in October of that year. Many people in technology expressed their thoughts and feelings in reaction to Jobs' passing, including his Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, the then-head of Pixar, John Lasseter, Microsoft chairman Bill Gates, and even U.S. President Barack Obama. The tech world at large wondered what would happen to Apple without Jobs at the helm. He was so tightly associated with the company that many weren't sure if it would survive without him. And there are still people to this day who wonder how different the company would be if Jobs had not passed away. While Jobs' passing was a dark moment in tech for many, one bright spot in technology in 2011 was how it played an important role as people in the Middle East used tech to help organize protests and revolutions against oppressive governments. This was a time called the Arab Spring. Technically, it started right at the tail end of 2010, but many of the major events would follow in 2011. Countries like Egypt, Libya, Syria, Yemen, and Bahrain all saw enormous organizational efforts among the population in a move to force massive political and social change, and tools like social media platforms played an important part in those efforts. Over at Sony, 
The company found its PlayStation Network service hacked by someone or a group of someones who left a file titled Anonymous on their servers. That file contained the message, We are Legion, in it. The hackers were able to access email addresses and user birth dates and potentially other information, including credit card information. In 2011, Google shut down one social media platform and launched another. The shuttered platform was Google Buzz, which was a failed experiment that had launched in 2010 but didn't get much traction. The new social media platform was Google+, which initially got a lot of buzz itself during its invitation-only beta. Many folks in the tech space, including tech journalists like uh, yours truly, got early access. But Google Plus wasn't really compelling enough to pull people over off of Facebook. And Facebook had such momentum that it wasn't going to give up the title for super heavyweight champ of the world as far as social media goes. Google would make some pretty radical decisions with Google Plus down the road, such as requiring YouTube accounts to be linked to a Google Plus account, and moreover, requiring YouTube users to use their real names as opposed to a screen name, which was a decision the company would walk back on later. The platform stuck around longer than Google Buzz did, but in April of 2019, Google chose to shut it down as well. Also in 2011, Google made a bid to acquire Motorola for $12.5 billion. It appeared as though Google was intent on making its own hardware in addition to supplying software to other original equipment manufacturers. Google would hold on to the company for only a few years before selling it in 2014 to Lenovo for $2.91 billion. Google held on to some of the R&D departments from Motorola and also held on to a couple thousand patents, but otherwise parted with its prized possession. In September 2011, Amazon announced the launch of the Kindle Fire, a low-cost tablet with a simple interface meant to take aim at a market that couldn't afford Apple's pricier iPad. Android tablets were plentiful in 2011, but for the most part, they weren't really making much headway. Amazon was able to launch a tablet tied into its other services and make it work, posing the first real competitor to the iPad at that point. Going back to Apple for a second, 2011 was when the world was introduced to a new digital entity, Siri. The virtual personal assistant was one of the first killer implementations. Many of the features could be found in other services, but none had encapsulated them the way Apple did. And Siri was a big hit as people immediately tried to find different ways of making her or him say weird stuff. Adobe discontinued support for the development of the Flash plugin for mobile browsers that year as well. Flash was meant to help web developers create dynamic web page elements and players, but the creation of HTML5 had largely superseded Flash's usefulness. Plus, the plugin created potential security vulnerabilities. A year earlier, Steve Jobs had pretty much slammed Flash, stating that no Apple device would ever support it, so it didn't come as a big surprise that Adobe decided to say farewell to it. AT&T had made a bid to acquire T-Mobile in 2011, but gave up on that plan later in the year, and Snapchat also became a thing in 2011. Oh, and Leo Apotheca resigned from Hewitt-Packard, being replaced by Meg Whitman in 2011. Now let's move on to 2012. You know, the year when the, the world ended because of the Mayan calendar thing. 
Well, early in 2012, the tech community in the United States largely united in opposition to two pieces of proposed legislation that were going through the various uh, houses of government in the U.S. One was the Stop Online Piracy Act, otherwise known as SOPA, and the other was the Protect IP Act, or PIPA. Both pieces of legislation sought to combat intellectual property theft by limiting access to sites that were accused of housing stolen material. And the proposals went even further than that. They actually placed potential restrictions and fines on any companies that would advertise on such sites or search engines that would list such sites in their search results. So... Even referring to or supporting the sites in any way, even if, if it was inadvertently, could get you fined. And the way web advertising works is you might not know where your ads are showing up. You might be working with a firm that's securing ad space for your brand on various sites. If one of those happened to be one of these that would get targeted by these, these pieces of legislation, you could find yourself in hot water. So there was obviously a lot of resistance to these. So many major sites like Google protested the proposals, calling them overreach and censorship and perhaps even impossible to implement. And ultimately, neither proposal would be enacted into law, and they both fizzled away. Mega upload founder Kim.com, formerly Kim Schmitz, was arrested in January 2012 on charges of housing and distributing pirated material. His home in New Zealand was the site of a massive police raid, and since then, he has fought efforts to extradite him to the United States for trial. The case has made its way through the New Zealand court system to the point where the next case will be heard before the New Zealand Supreme Court if they choose to hear it. At that point, it will be decided whether or not he will be sent to the U.S. for prosecution and trial. Right now, as it stands, the decision is he can be extradited. So unless the Supreme Court overturns that decision, he will ultimately have to face trial in the United States at some point. But this story is still unfolding today. Oh, and one super cool thing to happen in 2012 was that researchers at the Large Hadron Collider found evidence that the Higgs boson particle, a theoretical particle that would explain why matter has mass, actually exists. It's not just theoretical. That was super awesome. And another super awesome tech story of 2012 involved NASA landing the Curiosity rover on Mars using a capsule, lowering the rover to the surface of the planet using a sky crane. Now, it's hard to call any single element of this operation the most impressive because it's all amazing. But to me, what was super nifty was that the whole process had to happen through automation. Because the distance between Mars and Earth means that there's a delay of several minutes between when things are happening in one place and when we can know about them in the other place. It takes time for information to travel between the two points. So that would mean that by the time we learn about conditions on Mars, several minutes have already passed since that moment happened. There's no way for us to be able to control, say, a, 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 you know, a drone or a rover or a capsule from Earth that's moving around Mars. The delay is too long. So it had to be automated. Everything had to happen just right for this to work, and it did. And that is super cool. Now, it was also the year that Felix Baumgartner did his spectacular space dive from a hot air balloon at the very edge of space. That was a pretty amazing moment, too. I remember watching that with 
not a small amount of anxiety as he plummeted through the atmosphere. NASA also retired the space shuttles that year, and a SpaceX capsule docked with the International Space Station for the first time. That was also the year that Blue Origin tested its reusable rockets for the first time, although not with a landing procedure. That would wait a little bit longer. Plus, this was around the time when private companies were starting to seriously talk about mining asteroids. But uh, let's, uh, let's get a little more terrestrial. So you remember how back in 2009, Microsoft was able to reverse some of the criticism directed toward it for the Vista operating system by releasing Windows 7? And how the company managed to change course to help bring corporate customers back into the fold with that launch? Well, get ready for another sharp turn because it's time to talk about Windows 8, baby! Windows 8 was a big change from earlier versions of Windows. Microsoft was gambling on the rise of tablets and on touchscreen interfaces. And the Windows 8 UI was evidence of that gamble. Rather than a desktop of icons and a menu with a full list of programs on the device, the Windows 8 Metro UI had apps on tiles. Ideally, you would use a touchscreen interface to swipe through the different options, selecting the one you wanted. You could opt to use a slightly more traditional UI if you wanted to, but it wasn't the default. Along with this operating system, Microsoft also launched the Surface Tablet. Now, that made sense. The tablet would be built to support the OS and show off all of its Metro features. And a lot of reviewers praised the Windows 8 tablet when it came to this implementation. They cited the look and feel of the OS on the tablet was more robust than what Apple's iPad could uh, could provide. So they said, in some ways, this is superior to Apple's iPad. But there was one small problem. A lot of people hated the desktop version of Windows 8. A lot. To the point where there were a lot of people and companies who treated 8 the way they had treated Windows Vista, by not adopting it and holding out for another course correction. They would stick with Windows 7 instead. Some places would stick with an even older version, Windows XP, which was not super smart, but you can kind of understand why they went with it. The departure from the traditional UI for desktop owners and the emphasis on touchscreen interfaces didn't really go over so well. Now, as I said in an episode of Tech Stuff last year, I think a lot of people on laptops and desktops rarely, if ever, use touchscreen displays with their devices. It just, it's the kind of UI that makes more sense from a tablet or smartphone form factor, but it tends to be awkward for other types of devices. Over at Yahoo, the company hired away Marissa Meyer from Google. Meyer would become the new CEO of Yahoo in an effort to shake things up and turn things around for the bloated, stumbling company. Many hoped she would be the source of energy that the company needed, but lots of factors played into her tenure largely being viewed as a failure. Some, but not all, of those factors were under her control. Initially, the company looked like it was on the right path, with climbing stock prices and a shakeup in leadership. But decisions to do stuff like acquire Tumblr would prove to be wasteful, and later still, the company would be at the center of a truly massive data breach scandal, which I'll touch on when we get there. Oh, and uh, Google also revealed its driverless car initiative in 2012. 
The company had been secretly conducting tests for a while, but it became public in 2012. The initiative would eventually evolve into its own spin-off startup company called Waymo a few years later. Apple unveiled the iPhone 5 in 2012 and gave Google Maps the boot, favoring the company's own Apple Maps app instead. But the Apple version was a bit... Um, Lost in the weeds, I guess? Users found inaccuracies in some maps. Some maps seemed to be missing roads, or they had roads placed where no roads actually were, or they would be told to turn onto a river. The app initially had no transit direction service either, so it was a mess, and it had uh, a lot of people telling jokes at Apple's expense because of this. Users found the experience frustrating and counterproductive, it prompted a rare apology from Apple as CEO Tim Cook acknowledged the problems and then a few heads rolled over at Apple HQ as a result. Now, I've got a little bit more to say about 2012, but first, let's take another quick break. Over at Facebook, the company was barreling toward its initial public offering, which would make the company a publicly traded entity for the first time. But the process did not go smoothly. There were multiple problems with the IPO launch, from too many shares that were issued to an overvalued stock price of $38 per share. There were lots of shenanigans going on the day of launch, including charges that Morgan Stanley, the financial institution that was the underwriter for the IPO, had influenced stock shares in a way that was, you know, kind of illegal, or at the very least, very much frowned upon. Facebook's stock price took a tumble as a result, sinking below $18 per share and giving the company a pretty sharp blow to the solar plexus as far as its valuation was concerned. The company has more than recovered in the years since, however, with stock prices now more than 200 bucks per share. That same year, Facebook made one of its big acquisitions, purchasing the photo-sharing app Instagram for about a billion dollars. However, the plummeting price of Facebook stocks would actually make that more like $740 million at the end. Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger, the co-founders of Instagram, would stay with Facebook until 2018. After leaving, details would slowly spread as to why they had departed the company in the first place, and it was largely because, despite early promises not to do this, Facebook was frequently lifting features from Instagram to incorporate in other Facebook services and would also interfere with Instagram's operations. So these days, there are regulatory agencies that are looking to separate Instagram from Facebook, breaking up the companies. Whatever happens... We, well, I mean, we're going to have to wait. It just it hasn't happened yet, but there's still ongoing conversations about breaking up Facebook. We'll get, talk about that a little bit more when we get to WhatsApp. That's, that's in the future. Spoiler alert. Nintendo launched the Wii U in 2012. It was an update to the 2006 console, the Nintendo Wii, and it featured a controller called the GamePad, which housed a tablet touchscreen as part of the controller. The control scheme created new opportunities for gameplay mechanics, but the console itself was a disappointment in the market. One major problem was that there were very few titles that actually took advantage of the innovation, and it left gamers feeling like they had bought a console with features that no one was really taking advantage of. The Wii U would go on to be one of the bigger disappointments in Nintendo's console history. 
As for companies established in 2012, well, the one most of you would likely recognize by name is Oculus VR. The company aimed to bring virtual reality to the home consumer. More on that later, too. All right, let's move on to 2013. And yeah, um, this is definitely a two-parter episode. So on the bright side, like I said, I'm going to skip all of 2019 at the end of the next one because I just did two episodes about that. So, you know, you have that to look forward to. So it was 2013 when a man named Edward Snowden became a public figure as the former contractor for the NSA blew the whistle on how the National Security Agency had been conducting a truly massive data collection and espionage program on American citizens, largely centered on phone and computer data transmissions and potentially affecting millions of people. The NSA denied allegations of wrongdoing and said that it was operating within the bounds of the law, but then the laws themselves allowed for such secrecy that this was not much of a comfort. Add to that the fact that while the agency might be founded on sound principles, people can still be jerk faces. And you got a big problem there, right? There were stories of NSA employees who were taking advantage of this enormous amount of data surveillance and using it to look into personal matters of their own, like to spy on exes and things like that, nasty stuff. While the NSA stories have largely died down since 2013, Snowden continues to live in effective exile in Russia. There was an increase in cybersecurity attacks in 2013. There were targets like... Well, the retail store Target that found themselves the victims of hacker attacks. Now, I'd love to say that things have gotten better since then, but every year we've seen more stories about data breaches, not fewer stories. Some of these stories are brought on by hackers exploiting vulnerabilities, and others are the result of dumb mistakes in which companies accidentally expose treasure troves of personal information to the world at large. 2013 saw Twitter hold its own initial public offering, and unlike Facebook's bungled IPO, the Twitter one went off pretty darn well. The company had not yet proven to be profitable, but still managed to have a successful IPO and made a lot of early investors a lot of money. Now, we first heard about Elon Musk's proposed high-speed rail system called Hyperloop, Back in 2013, the idea would have trains moving through tunnel systems in which most of the air would get pumped out, and that would cut way down on wind resistance. The rails would connect cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, providing an alternative to a drive that lasts several hours or a short but environmentally wasteful flight. We're still seeing various companies compete to bring some variation of Musk's vision to life, and it remains to be seen if any approach will prove feasible enough to tackle the incredible challenge associated with building out new high-speed rail infrastructure. You might get all the technology to fall into place and show that it works and that it's safe and efficient, but you still have to build the darn stuff, and that's where I think we're going to see a lot of issues moving forward. Meanwhile, Amazon founder and Uber billionaire Jeff Bezos announced that Amazon had long-term plans to introduce a delivery service in which drones would drop off packages. He also spent some of his considerable wealth to purchase the newspaper, The Washington Post. We started seeing big changes in entertainment in 2013 as Netflix launched its own studio to create original content. Now, these days, that's a given, but back then, it was a pretty big move. 
suddenly a streaming service was actually getting into the business of making the stuff it was streaming. And it came out swinging with the series House of Cards, which earned the service some pretty positive reviews and 14 Emmy nominations. It also opened up the opportunity for other services to get into the production game, leading to our current environment in which you need to subscribe to a half dozen different services to see all the various programming available. Welcome to the new cable age. Oh, and in the United States, we saw, you know, a very rough launch of a very important service in healthcare.gov. This site was the first internet-only U.S. national government service, and it had so many errors and problems at launch that it helped create a pretty negative overview of the U.S. government's Affordable Care Act in general. It did, however, start up a much-needed conversation about how to reform the process by which the U.S. government acquires and implements technology, because this was not the right way to do it. It was pretty rotten. Also in 2013, Microsoft unveiled the Xbox One, the successor to the Xbox 360. The initial launch event didn't go super smoothly, with a general backlash directed at Microsoft over the fact that the Xbox One was meant to have a persistent internet connection, a requirement that the company would subsequently drop before launch day. Meanwhile, Sony announced and later launched the PlayStation 4. And while Microsoft had done pretty well against Sony with the Xbox 360, helped in large part by the fact that they had a year's head start on the PS3, the PS4 would outperform Microsoft's console in the sales department by a long shot. Oh, also at Microsoft in 2013, we saw a change in leadership. Steve Ballmer announced he would retire as CEO. Ballmer had led the company since Bill Gates had stepped down as CEO way back in 2000. And he would actually stay on with Microsoft until 2014 so that they could establish a new CEO. So this was just him announcing his retirement. Over at Google, the company killed off its RSS aggregator service called Google Reader. I don't know how many of you remember that. It was really important to me. I loved it. But it left a lot of dedicated users like myself upset. However, other services like Feedly would sweep in to keep RSS clients relevant. I still use them myself to keep up with the latest news in various areas, you know, like tech. We also saw the Pebble debut in 2013. Uh, the Kickstarter project was one of the most successful in history, and it was also an early example of wearable technology. For a while, it looked like wearables were going to be the next step beyond smartphones as far as computing is concerned. Uh, we had already seen a major move from traditional computers to mobile devices by 2013. But while numerous companies have produced various smartwatches and activity trackers and other wearable types of tech, only a few like Fitbit saw any real adoption success. And Pebble's own early victory wouldn't be enough to sustain the company over the long term. It would eventually get acquired by Fitbit a couple of years later and largely dismantled. 2013 was also when the Gamergate nastiness got started. It began as a backlash against a game developer named Zoe Quinn, but it escalated rapidly beyond that. Now, ostensibly, it was about game development and ethics and game journalism, but how it really played out was as a series of campaigns of harassment aimed at a number of people in and connected to the games industry, most of them women. 
There was no official leadership of this so-called movement, but the coordination of attacks was pretty sophisticated, making extensive use of online communities like Reddit and 4chan. And you don't even need that many people to have an effective uh, campaign of harassment for it to really get to people. And we saw that happen a lot with Gamergate. It was truly awful stuff. In 2013, one company launched that would end up dominating the news cycle a few years later down the road for all the wrong reasons. That company was Cambridge Analytica, a political consulting firm that was based in the United Kingdom but would operate around the world. Now, I did episodes about Cambridge Analytica and the scandal around it and how that company operated, including how a good deal of its data on people came from an unethical Facebook survey app that collected information on users without their consent. The whole story gets super complicated and super ugly, not just in the United States, but around the world. Uh, The company would eventually go bankrupt in 2018, but many related consulting firms, some operated by people who worked at Cambridge Analytica, are still very much in operation to this day. The Cambridge Analytica scandal is part of what brought Facebook under intense scrutiny a few years later and also created suspicion around the possibility of even holding fair elections in general. So yeah, this was a big story and one that had incredibly powerful consequences. Now, in our next episode, we're going to take a look at some of the big tech stories that unfolded from 2014 to 2018. And if you want to hear about 2019, like I said, just go back a couple of episodes before this one, because I pretty much covered all of that already. In the meantime, if you guys have suggestions for future topics I should cover on Tech Stuff, reach out to me on social networks. The uh, place you can do that with would be like Facebook or, or Twitter. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW. Just tag me in that and I'll see it. And uh, I'll talk to you again about the 2014 to 2018 really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 